It is my pleasure to welcome Shakar Azadi. Let me unleash, release the microphone. Well, good evening, Erev Tov. I'm so happy to be with you here tonight. And coming from the city, I am so happy to be with you here tonight. Get some fresh air, see actual nature and trees that don't have to succumb to the streets. Um, allow me to start by, from a direction I didn't necessarily expect. Today is October 6th. October 6th of 1973 was a momentous day in Israel. The start of the Yom Kippur War, when at high noon, Israel was honoring the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, it was ferociously attacked by neighboring armies. In the course of uh, the reception just before I came up, I had a chance to speak to some of you. In the course of uh, that time, I got to exchange a few words with Harry Ungerman here. And Harry told me that it was in 1973, after living in Israel for a few years and coming back here, when he heard about the uh, breakout of the Yom Kippur War, he did not think twice, missing his son's bar mitzvah, boarded a plane and arrived in Israel to help the people of Israel. I just want to take a few seconds and just to say todalaba, thank you to Harry here. Let, let you know that uh, the people of Israel will be forever grateful for such sacrifices and others of people who feel at heart that connection with the Jewish homeland in our time of need. Todalaba, Harry. So allow me to start um, with a story. A story just to remind us when we talk about Israel to be away from the obvious, not to assume that what we have today has forever existed. A story to remind us all of how fortunate we are as a Jewish people, as a Jewish community, to be living in this day and age. There is much to complain about politically and otherwise wherever we go. But sometimes we stick to that negative energy, forgetting the greater picture. And the story I want to share with you is a personal one. I am of Yemenite descent. My grandparents on both sides came to Israel on the magic carpet. Yeah, nothing to do with the Aladdin movie. The magic carpet, or on eagle's wings, was the aliyah, the arrival of the Yemenite Jewish community to Israel as uh, they were rescued 50,000 people in the course of several years when Israel was uh, just established. The first half of the community arrived in Israel in 1881, and the second half, like so many other Jewish communities all over the Middle East, had to fight for their lives and escape those who were trying to annihilate them once the nascent Jewish state was reestablished. Many of these Yemenite Jews were traveling through the deserts, trying to arrive at the British Army outpost in the Aden Territory. Many of them perished along the way from hunger, diseases, and terrible acts of violence. And those who arrived at the British command station had no tents or food or any kind of facility to support them. Planes took them from Aden to the state of Israel. A few years back, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine, Dr. Andy David, who at the time served as Israel's Consul General in San Francisco. Hi, Shachar, he says. You've no idea where I just came back from. I said, where, where were you? 
said, well, I was just in Anchorage, Alaska. It was wonderful. Now, he knew I always wanted to travel, uh, especially get there. I said, well, boo-hoo, I'm so happy you had fun. He said, no, 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 but I just have to share this with you. I was at the Jewish Museum in Anchorage, Alaska. Jewish Museum, I asked, what did they have there? Bears with a keeper? <laughs> he said, do not make fun of the frozen chosen. Okay, Jewish Museum, that sounds fabulous, definitely on my list, but what made you call me with such enthusiasm? He says, well, you know, at the Jewish Museum, the exhibit was on eagle's wings, the arrival of the Yemenite Jewish community to Israel in 1949. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Alaska would definitely celebrate the arrival of <laughs> Yemenites to Israel, especially Jews. The whole, the whole thing works. What? He said, well, yes, let me ask you, as a descendant of those Yemenite olim, what airplanes were they that brought the Yemenite Jewish community to Israel? A question I never asked myself, for I always kind of assumed they were either Uber, Lyft, Elal, or just passing around. I have no idea, I said, was it Elal or were they too costly? No, I'm just kidding. Who were they? Well, to my surprise, he said, well, allow me to break you the news. It was Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines crews and planes were the ones who made that journey. I was amazed, and I knew there and then that I have to get there and learn more about this. So that was in Pesach, April of um, 2016, and immediately, Shachar being Shachar, I dial 411, get the phone number for the Alaska Jewish Museum, pick up the phone, hi, may I speak with the curator please, who is that? It's Shachar calling from New York. Oh, okay. <laughs> three months later, three months later I had the pleasure of uh, having a great event in Anchorage, Alaska at the Jewish Museum, co-sponsored by the community, the Jewish Museum and Alaska Airlines, and the topic of the event was gratitude, thank you, for flying my family home. Thank you for because of the bravery of the Alaska Airlines crew, am I able to stand in front of you today and so many others, close to 750,000 people, owe you their lives. It was a very touching moment for me. As I was walking at the museum, I couldn't help noticing a book. And the book was called On Eagle's Wings. I asked Leslie, who's a curator, a wonderful woman, Leslie, who's Elgin Long? You don't know Elgin, she said. I have no idea who Elgin is. She said, well, Elgin is not Jewish. He's the last surviving member of the Alaska Airlines crew who took part in that operation. Where is he, I asked. Is he here? No. Where is he? He's home. Where is home? Somewhere up the West Coast. Well, I have to meet him, say thank you. His book, On the Wings of Eagles, was a summary of his part in the operation. I reached out to Captain Long, Captain Elgin Marion Long, a notable navigator and pilot in the American aviation community, a most respected member who has pursued all his life, wrote many books, taught in many places, highly respected by so many, and focused on issues like finding the remains of Amelia Earhart's airplane and doing a lot of wonderful things in the community. I reached out to Captain Long. Hi, am I speaking to Captain Elgin Long? Yes, who is that? It's Shahar calling from New York. <laughs> I'm just calling to say thank you. So thank you for what? Just thank you for the part you took in bringing my family and so many other members of the Yemenite Jewish community home when 
they direly needed it. Oh, don't mention it, he said. I did what anybody would do. There were people in need, and we were there to help them. Can we say thank you properly? What do you have in mind? Maybe. And so it happened that in 2017, we were able to host a big event for him in New York City with hundreds of people, including representatives of the Israeli government, honoring him and Alaska Airlines for their role in bringing so many people back safely to Israel. I have to tell you the modesty of Elgin, the humility, looking somebody of truly the greatest generation in the eye, who looks at you and says, I don't get what all of this fuss is about. I didn't do anything special. Really, I didn't. An Alaska airline that was so proud of their history, not like what one may assume that like any other commercial entity, Israel is too political, leave it alone, but rather taking ownership of their history and being proud of it. At that time, Elgin, who's 90, I um, asked him, Elgin, have you been back in Israel since? Oh, no, Shachar. Would you like to go, I ask. Oh, it's my dream. When would you like to go? Shachar, I'm 90 any minute from now. <laughs> and from that moment, in October of 2017, we reached March of 2018, where I had the pleasure of accompanying Captain Elgin Long on a 10-day trip to Israel. I asked Captain Long, what do you want to do in Israel when we get there? Would you like to meet the Prime Minister, visit the Knesset or the Holy Sites, meet with the government, do anything you want? He said, well, there are a couple of things, but most importantly, he said, I want to see them. Who's them? I asked. Them, the people I brought. How are they? Have they been able to use the opportunity they were given to build a life? How are their kids? How are they doing today? And it was amazing to come with this man to Israel. As we arrived at Ben-Gurion International Airport, he walks and he looks at the black and white pictures at the entrance halls and says, yes, exactly, that's exactly what it looks like. That's exactly what it looked like. It's amazing to see Shachar. I said, what is amazing? He said, at the time, we were the only plane coming in and out. And now, from Lod, Lida, the Arabic name, it became Ben-Gurion International Airport, welcoming millions of people to Israel. It's a miracle. We, he says, we've been around for a few hundred years, but you, such a young nation of merely, barely 70 years old, and you've been able to achieve this? Very impressive, and I remind myself of his words every day. When I take these things for granted, the startup nation, the technology, the strong entity, that's Israel, and what a miraculous thing that is and accompanying him among the community events in Israel. We had a couple seeing hundreds of people shedding tears as they look at their rescuer. Two 96-year-old sisters come to the stage just to give him a kiss on the cheek. I stood with him after the event as so many people were stampeding in his direction just to give him a hug and say, thank you so much. I look at him fearfully and I say, Elgin, let me help you. I'll ask them to stand in line and he, with blushing cheeks and an abashed smile of a six-year-old, turns to me and says, Shahar, let them come to me. I am here now. I want to feel their love. That was a moment, a profound moment of appreciation and understanding of what Israel is what it took to bring Israel to become what it is, and what kind of appreciation we should all have for the reemergence of the Jewish state on the international stage. 
And I always make sure to remind myself that very much beyond and above any kind of political discussion or disagreement or anything else that makes me feel bad or critical about things that may be going wrong, to be able to wage that war on the outside and on the inside, to be able to fight for a more just situation outside and inside is a great privilege. And even if we are critical of some things that happen around us, it is our obligation not to disengage, but engage. Be part of this miracle, for you were given that opportunity. And this is what I wanted to remind you tonight. Before we dive into the issues of how to talk about Israel and what I may be able to share with you to some degree from my experience, just to give you that hint, that understanding of what it is that we are talking about. So maybe now we can actually touch the point. Thank you very much for having me. Today's, thank you. Today's topic, I want to talk about exactly that, how to talk about Israel. And to, just for a minute, understand what are the challenges that we face today when talking about Israel. The, before I show you a quick video, I want to share with you a story. I have to do a story. I have to do a story. Um, Israel is usually framed in a very certain way on the international stage. And I remember when I served in Nairobi, Kenya, as the Israeli deputy ambassador working with the UN and then a couple of countries in the region, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Zambia, Malawi, Seychelles, doing incredible work for Israel on a variety of fields of no significance whatsoever, like the environment, water issues, human settlement, you know, not the, not the fascinating and very important stuff of the UN Security Council or the UN Human Rights Council, just the trivial stuff that we don't really care about. And to see the impact that Israel has had, and then I received the appointment that I'm going to move from Nairobi to Los Angeles, or the way I looked at it, from the safari to the jungle. <laughs> and now my role is Consul for Public Diplomacy, working on public awareness for Israel. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm here. How about if I reach out and talk to kids? Let's go to high schools and speak to school assemblies and share with them some of my diplomatic experience. One of the first phone calls I make was for a certain high school that I heard about, Beverly Hills High School. And I called the principal and I said, hi, I'd love to come and talk to you about Israel. And I'll never forget the response that I got, which was basically, well, that'll be great, but do me a favor, for balance sake, can you just grab a Palestinian with you? <laughs> now, I have to admit, I was young to the US at the time. I didn't know where I can grab a Palestinian. If they come inflatable, do I go to Target, Costco, what's the refund policy? So I decided I'm going to skip it, because um, I really didn't know what to do. And I had an intern in my office whose sister went to Beverly Hills High, and I shared with her my frustration at the uh, inflatable issue. And um, she was telling me, you know, my sister actually established, um, you know, she, wants to, she would love to have you come speak. Oh, that's fabulous. Yes, she said she can get a couple of kids and maybe a teacher to come and talk to you over a brown bag lunch outside, if you'd like. Well, of course, you know, as a proper diplomat, I need a chopper and a couple of security guards and escalates to accompany me. So, of course, who can refuse a sandwich under the California sign? And we had a great chat, myself and a couple of kids and a teacher. And two weeks later, I get an email from the same uh, uh, principal who invites me to speak at the school, to the school assembly, but this time at the behest of a certain club that was just established at the school called Romans for Israel which is a pro-Israel club established by those kids 
who wanted me as their first speaker, and this time there was no disclaimer or asterisk asking me to bring any item with me. And, of course, be careful what you wish for, because I get to the school and you have hundreds of kids over lunch for an hour and a half. What am I going to tell them? So, of course, I could go immediately in the direction of, here's a terrible time, let me talk to you about the Qassam rockets coming in from Gaza. But I knew that at that point, I would have lost them in about 12 seconds. So I thought, what could I share with them that may be of interest? And at the time, there was this book published called Israel Startup Nation by Dan Senor and Soul Singer, a great read talking about Israel's creative environment and entrepreneurial scene, a wonderful read on every level. And I thought to myself, that could be a nice opening line for me. So my first line at the school was, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, but let me tell you this, even though it's my first time here, I already know you. I know each and every one of you. I know everything there is to know about your lives, your faculty, your families, and your homes. And it's only because I watched Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> now at that point, I gave a wave of laughter, but what else am I getting? I'm getting an understanding of my first point on message, the power of the media to shape images, the ability to convey a message even on a subconscious level of what it is that we're talking about. Think well about what you know and how do you frame your process of thinking. The power of the media to project images. Today I told them, I'm going to share with you the secrets of how to become a success in life, how to make it out there. I will give you the relative advantage of succeeding wherever you go, financially and otherwise. And then I share with them several anecdotes from the book of Startup Nation and the origins of creativity and the entrepreneurial zeal. They were fascinated. But Shachar, Rega, seriously, you're avoiding talking to them about the issues. You're trying to pull a falafel dance when you actually need to... How are you? But worry not. For the Q&A session, after about 25 minutes, the first question was on the Israeli-Palestinian issue and a recent operation of Israel in Gaza. But at that point, at that point, I already had a constituency that was eager to hear what I have to say. I was already able to build a bridge to their heart so people were ready to engage and listen to the mindful interactions of the mind. What is it that you want to say that I will listen to? you're already framing it in the form of a conversation, which is the lesson number one in addressing issues of Israel. You know, we, many a time we fall into the trap of the Kishka diplomacy, right? I'll tell you what I want to tell you. Do you know that this is what the Yeah, sure, of course. But how often do we actually think to ourselves, wait, let me see who is it that I'm speaking to? What is my target audience? What are their field of interests. What do they care about? And how can I find my point of docking so that I can discuss Israel? So even though it will make me feel better if I tell them what I want to tell them, it will be much more impactful to engage on a level where people care about, and that way they're going to want to hear about us. Just to understand the framework of the question, I got this copy of a um, of a lecture from one of the campuses here in the U.S. that I want to share with you. It left an impression with me. Yeah. Let's watch the, the rabbi here. <laughs> okay, I'm doing it well, Cassie. Are we good? Are we good? What happened? What did I do? It's a conspiracy. 
Listen carefully, there'll be questions after. We go to senior Middle East correspondent John Oliver. John, I've got amazing breaking news. A new religious scroll has been discovered that may hold the key to a lasting peace in the Middle East. Does this, does this scroll provide evidence to one group's claims? Uh, it absolutely does, John. It's all right here in black and papyrus. This, this scroll actually reveals that the real Jewish promised land is not the land of Judea and Samaria, but right here in Halifax, Canada. Yeah. The biblical Jewish promised land uh -huh. is Halifax. Uh, no, no, actually, John, it's pronounced Halifax. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little, it's a little, Halifax. 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 No, 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 John, it, it's Halifax. 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 Yeah, let's close it. Excuse me, John. Yes, this is outrageous, okay? This area has always been and always will be sacred to Muslims. This area contains some of the most sacred sites in all of Islam. You're talking about Halifax. First of all, it's pronounced Halalifax. No, John, I can prove it. It's all right here in Hebrew. In fact, let me read it to you for a second. Uh, here we go. No, no, no. Uh, this land clearly belongs to the Jews. I want to make that absolutely clear. I spoke to Mohammed last night and he's cool with it. It's, it's really not as complicated as it seems. He's just chanting English. That's just ridiculous. Okay, according to the Quran, Halalifax contains the very lake when Muhammad first went ice fishing, he caught a bass this big. No, no, no. Hey, hey, family. Family. I'll believe that when I see a picture of it. No, I can't show you one. Oh, that's very convenient. Oh, that's so convenient, isn't it? Now, John, John, you are being intentionally provocative. No, that's not funny at all. No, no, Asif, I think that rock came from your area. Yeah, oh, oh, so now I'm responsible for everything that comes from my box. You're a liar! You're a liar! this reasonably as soon as he stops with all those attacks. Hey, 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 hey! What? Son of a bitch! Did your box just get bigger? No. Yeah, you just took some no. of my box! This is not your box! This is not your box! Historically, that has always been part of my box. This! This is an illegal occupation! It's fine, it's fine. As I Thank you. <clears throat> so in this telling um, part about the history of the Middle East, anybody wishes to comment anything that you noticed about this skit, um, The Daily Show, John Stewart? Anybody has a comment? Was it anti-Israel, pro-Israel? What do you have to say about it in general? Anything? Yes? Oh.
equating. It made both sides equal. Very true. So let me repeat that. First of all, take a look. What you see here is what's done continuously, which is the general fatigue with the issues or with the topics. And usually what you will find is that equating the Palestinian to the Israeli side in a shallow way without even diving into the cause and effect. It was notoriously shown on a magazine cover, I believe it was Newsweek at the time, during the Second Intifada, the terrible days of the attacks, where Newsweek partitioned their cover between a teenager who was a suicide bomber and then a young 18-year-old Israeli soldier who died in one of the attacks. And both of them were on the cover of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So the challenges we face out there are multiple, but mainly if we focus to understand the issue is the false equation between the parties that is a direct result of the general fatigue of the issue. What else that you saw here was the noise, right? They're both crazy. They're both meshuganate. They're fighting, they're talking nonsense. I can't listen to you, and I can't listen to you. Both of you don't make sense to me. And what am I actually saying? Is remembering who the target audience is. Who are we trying to speak to? So a lot of us will try to educate the haters. And some of us would indulge engaging with the lovers. And these both groups are on the fringes for you have a huge majority of over 70% of the general public that have no idea what we're talking about. They don't know anything about the Israeli political system. They don't know anything about the complexities of the Middle East. They don't even know that what Israel is and where it is. I remember speaking in one of the Ivy League campuses. Uh, one of the students raised his hand and said, Consulazan, I have a question. How many people live in Israel? Well, I said, you know, being a good Jew, tell me, what do you think? How many people do you think live in Israel? How about I asked you? I said, no, no, come on, just indulge me. He said, well, I would say anywhere between 150 to 180 million people. I said, okay, from your, your mouth to God's ears. But let me ask you, why? Why do you think this is a number? Oh, he said, well, that's simple. Because the media is focusing on you guys, and, you know, you're much bigger than, you have to be much bigger than China and India if this is the kind of media attention that you're getting, you have, we have to understand that when we engage with many people out there, we have to assume a certain level of knowledge. Not, God forbid, ignorance, but understanding that not each and every individual walking down the street at Starbucks is ready to engage with you on the criminal charges against Sarah Netanyahu. That people know less than what you might think, and you need to be able to accept it and engage on that level. Now, this is very dangerous. Why? Because when you think about the main challenge here, it's not animosity that troubles me. It's indifference to Israel. It's lack of information about Israel. Because that ignorance about Israel is a great fertile ground for the Israel haters. If I know nothing about Israel, and I'm on college campus, and somebody comes up to me and says, Are you Jewish? Oh, yes, yes, I am. How do you make that determination? I don't know, the keeper and the Magen David on your... I said, well, I'm just wondering, did you hear about that incident yesterday when an IDF soldier shot and killed five pregnant Palestinian women at the checkpoint as they were giving birth? Shame on you. <laughs> now, if I don't know anything, I'm going to... Oh, I, 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 that's terrible. But what's going to happen? Best case scenario, I'm indifferent. I'm going to take a step back. Worst case scenario, I'm going to be heading an anti-Israel movement. Based on what? Based on knowing what? And we've seen these cases out there. 
Now, I'm not saying that nobody knows and everybody who's critical of Israel has to be no. Because at that point, the assumption is that if you know, we're ready to engage. Nobody's more critical of Israel than the Israelis. Nobody is more versatile democratically than Israeli society. And we're happy to engage with those who know. On, a, on one of the most notable episodes on um, the Bill Maher show, a couple of months ago, John Legend was speaking. I don't know if, many, if some of you saw that clip. Great two minutes. Great two minutes. I kept, actually, the video didn't work. I wanted to show it to you. On that interview, John Legend comes out and says, standing up for Palestinians, it was in, in response to Ilhan Omar's mention of the Benjamins. And he says, you know, standing up for the Palestinians is a progressive point of view. One of the participants on the panel, journalist David Frum, asked him, not again from necessarily a pro-Israel point of view, said, but what do you think about what's happening in Venezuela? The death squads, the situation right at our very doorstep. What needs to be done there? Oh, I'm afraid I don't know much about Venezuela. Why? Because the media doesn't talk about Venezuela. They talk about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. So you admit your ignorance on the issue, and yet you feel very strongly about waving a flag that's very fashionable today to talk about the Palestinian issue. This is why our major goal is to realize that channel, that challenge of ignorance. One day I'm crossing from Canada to the US. I'm presenting my passport to the customs official. She looks at me, looks at her friend and says, ah, shocks, we lost the bet. I, you know, as innocent as I am always, I ask, what bet did you lose? Said, well, we just, we have this game, people fill the forms, and we try to, you know, guess where they're from. Oh, okay, where did you think I was from? Well, I don't know, maybe Italy, maybe Brazil, maybe Spain. Okay, why not Israeli? So she looks at me and says, oh, you seem far too smiley to be an Israeli. Think about that moment, that profound statement. The, the image as portrayed by the media of what Israel is. When you think Israel, what do you think about? And all of the positives of technology and everything, but let's take a look for a minute, and, and I specifically chose The Daily Show, because The Daily Show, at the time with Jon Stewart, not necessarily today, but maybe with Trevor Noah as well, Daily Show and other shows are perceived to be a major source of news, not just uh, Fox News or CNN. This is news. This is what people now know about the history of the Middle East. That discussion between John Oliver and Asif Mandvi. This is was just at the beginning of John Oliver's career. Great skit, but teaches you a lot. Now, I want to show you something, that similar analysis, on Protective Edge, the operation Israel conducted in Gaza a couple of years ago. Pay attention. Cassie, what's up? Okay, there we go. Lester decided to work for the Federation. <laughs> Cassie, can you give me a hand here? It's a uh, lost control. So that when you understand that this is what you need to penetrate to uh, uh, affect public opinion, then you have to understand or to reframe the language you use to address the issue of Israel. Not this one, not the black one. Yeah. Go down. The last video. Yeah, this one. Lester Holt. Thank you. Protective Edge 2014, 
when Israel had to defend itself from the rockets coming in from Gaza. By the entrances to Gaza, awaiting orders to invade. By the entrances to Gaza, awaiting orders to invade as the aerial bombardments from both sides continues. Mwah! Tastes great, more killing. Look, both sides are engaging in aerial bombardment, but one side appears to be bomb better at it. Most Hamas rockets are neutralized by Israel's Iron Dome technology, and Israeli citizens can even now download a warning app. You'll get it on your phone and you'll know exactly what city is being targeted and when it's being targeted. Well, that's the 299 version. The free version... <laughs> In the free version... You have to watch a clip of Transformers 4. And then... <laughs> you can get it off the screen, they'll tell you where the bomb is going. So Israelis seem to have a high-tech smartphone alert system. How are the Gazans notified? Basically, a small mortar explosion on the roof of a building, which serves as an Israeli warning of an upcoming airstrike. Hmm. So the Israeli military warns Gaza residents of imminent bombing with a smaller warning bombing. An amuse boom, if you will. supposed to do. The Israeli military telephoned the neighbor to warn them to evacuate, but they only had three minutes. Evacuate to where? Have you seen Gaza? It's this bit. Israel blocked this border. Egypt blocked this border. Were they supposed to swim for it? Perhaps nothing sums up the asymmetrical nature of this conflict more than a quick check-in with the correspondence assigned to the respective beats. Tonight we have the view from the ground on both sides, starting with Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv. <laughs> Look at this! The Gaza reporter looks like an extra from the Hurt Locker. While the reporter in Israel looks like he's gonna bang out his stand-up and then head to a Jimmy Buffett concert. So, for so many people, millions out there, these three minutes was everything they saw about the 2014 conflict between Hamas in Gaza and Israel. And there is so much wrong about this. I mean, even knock on the roof is a humanitarian attempt to save people. From all of the efforts that Israel has conducted throughout the operation. And yet, what is clearly visible from that segment is this. Who are the Israelis on this segment? Ambassador Ron Dermer, Red Alert app, technology, bombs, strength. Who are the Palestinians? The couple at the hospital that are evacuated. The perpetual image of Israeli victory. It's a challenge of perception of how can you take a tough situation, and indeed it's a tough situation. Israel's strength and abilities present a challenge. A challenge, I must admit, I'm happy to take every day. For forever I will prefer a problem on the image front rather than the dead bodies of children and innocent civilians struck by Hamas's rockets. And yet, this is our challenge here in talking about Israel. I met a friend of mine a couple of days ago 
who served uh, during this operation in Gaza, and he told me how every night they had to write a letter to their families, as if that's their last night, just in case it was their last night, and they take a traditional group photo. After about five such nights, they indeed got the order and they got into Gaza. In, when they got into one of the apartments, one of the buildings, one of the houses, they saw nobody in the house but an old woman leaning on her cane, sitting on the couch. They told her, you have to evacuate. There are, we have identified sources of attack coming from this region. You may get hurt. She says, no, I'm an old lady. I can't walk. So I have to stay. So they left two of their squad members with her to keep an eye on her, and the rest went down to the basement. Quickly enough, as they were leaning on one of the furniture in the basement, that furniture moved, and underneath was the opening for a tunnel that was leading from that house into the dining area of one of the kibbutzim. An attack was supposed to take place that Friday night coming from that tunnel. Going back upstairs, that woman had a clicker, and she was actually ready to press. She pressed a click to notify Hamas people that IDF soldiers have entered the building. This, this is the tough situation that IDF soldiers faced every day during that operation. These are the haze details of a very intricate com and com complicated conflict that people are less aware of. And therefore, when you ask yourself, what is the goal? The goal is, for me, not necessarily to convince everybody I speak to to sing the Havana Gila with me, but to understand that things may be complicated. When um, Susan Silverman, sorry, Sarah Silverman, tweeted a couple of, it wasn't, when was it, last year, uh, when Ahit Tamimi, the Palestinian teenager who was throwing shoes and attacking IDF soldiers, was arrested, she tweeted and said that she reminds her of Jeanne of Arc with her bravery. And immediately she got a, an influx of responses showing her that Ahit Tamimi is a vile anti-Semite who spreads terrible, terrible libels against Jews, not necessarily only Israel, but Jews. Things that came out of the, of the terrible, terrible stories of blood for matzah and Passover. That's the person we're talking about. She immediately retracted and said, you know what, maybe I shouldn't talk about what I don't know. A very honest and brave response. And this is all that we need to ask. Feel free to enter the realm, but make an opinion once you know what you're talking about. And the, the goal would be to share that information with people. How do we share that information? What do we do? First of all, we acknowledge that animosity is an enemy, but ignorance is a far greater enemy. Second of all, we build bridges to our target audience to try and understand who, do we, who are we speaking to and what can we use, quote unquote, to engage with people. Luckily, we don't represent Saudi Arabia. And Israel has so many stories to tell on so many different levels. And in most cases, we'll find our bridge to engage with people if we get to know these people. And thirdly, a very important point for us to remember as Jewish Federation, anti-Semitism and the perception of Israel as the Jew among the nations. And we're not talking about political disagreements. You know, I, I have to say I, I detest the current Netanyahu government and I just critical of Netanyahu, but if it were Gantz, or if it were Lieberman, or if it were Lapid, or anybody else, it would be different. I'll never forget my first lesson on this. In 2006, bless you, when I was speaking at one of the private campuses in Uganda, 
And that university was a private facility for the sons and daughters of main leaders in Africa. And I came to give them a briefing about the second Lebanon war, the terrible conflict we had with Lebanon and Hezbollah in 2006. And standing there, I spoke to about 43 professors. And when I finished, one of the professors raises a hand and said, Dear Deputy Ambassador Azani, I don't have a question. I have a comment. Thank you for your sincerity, I said. Well, I just wish to state something. I wish to compliment Israel for its control of world finances and compliment Israel for its control of American foreign policy. You're doing a fabulous job. This is a teacher who has the keys to the minds and hearts of so many youngsters in Africa. I never expected this. What would you do? What do you say? How do you respond? Take a minute for yourself later on and think, what would you do in such a situation? I can tell you what I improvised. I looked at him and said, allow me to respond to that claim. I can see you're no professor of geography. And then I bent a little and rubbed my hands against each other and said, allow me to rephrase your statement. I wish to compliment the Jews for their command of world finances and compliment the Jews for their control of American foreign policy. And if that reminds you of any protocols, of any elders, of any certain state published by the Russian security services at the beginning of the 20th century, that's entirely a figment of your imagination. Call out anti-Semitism when you see it and realize that in many people's minds, when they talk about Israel, all you have to do is replace the word Israel with Jews and you will see exactly what they're talking about. Without Israel, there will be world peace. The Israelis are terribly crude using Palestinian children's blood for matzah during Passover. The Israelis are poisoning our candies so that many Palestinian kids die. The Israelis are sterilizing the next generation of Palestinians to reduce the numbers of Palestinians. This is not criticism of the Netanyahu government policies, I assure you. And we all have to be brave in looking this reality in the eye and call it out. When criticism is criticism, it's fine. But when criticism is a facade of the ancient old anti-Semitic hatred, it is our responsibility to call it out and protect ourselves. For we know what's going to happen if we bow our heads and move on. It will not go away. It will still be there, thousands of years old. Unlike any other form of bigotry and hatred, anti-Semitism has a stand on its own as a unique malaise of the humanity, as one that has already driven humanity in its worst abyss only a few years ago and still dares to raise its ugly head today. So tonight is the ultimate response. Tonight, by coming here and by sharing this light of togetherness, we stand strong against that hatred. We stand together to support the Jewish state with all of its diversity and to support our community with all of its diversity. And for that, I would like to say a big thank you and todaba.